Hey everyone, welcome to Misaligned. We are back this week with another book club episode. In case you forgot, our pick was Punk USA, The Rise and Fall of Lookout Records. And we are going to do that. We're going to let you know what we've been listening to. We'll have our next book pick and then as usual, our recommendations too. But before that, Megan wants to tell you all about some more podcasts. Oh, yes. So Misaligned is part of the Modern Vinyl family of podcasts, and you can find all of the shows, including Pilot Study, the Modern Vinyl Podcast, the Vinyl Crawl, Missing Artwork, and of course ours, over at modern-vinyl.com. And for those of you who haven't kept up, the Modern Vinyl Podcast and Pilot Study were just at South by Southwest recording some podcasts, which is pretty cool. And details about that can be found over the site, and they should be live in like a week or so. Awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to those. I know the guys were there recording and everything, but I did not pay attention to what the topics were or anything like that. I kind of wanted to just, you know, be surprised when it pops up in Overcast for me. But on that note, we are going to just jump right into the book conversation today. And Megan, I know you and I both enjoyed this book quite a bit. And I feel like sometimes when I enjoy things, I have very limited things to say about them, especially a book like this, which is, you know, a shorter book. It was, I believe, just under 200 pages. So it wasn't a long read by any means. And because of the fact that I already, I think, knew a little bit more about Lookout Records than you did, it Mm -hmm. maybe didn't come as much of a surprise to me for some of the information that was given here. But I just really did enjoy how Kevin Preston got a lot of input from people directly involved in the label. It wasn't like, oh, my friend's band was on the label and stuff like that. It was, you know, the members of the bands that were actually on the label, you know, the co-owners of the label, the guy who started the label and everything like that. So it was very well sourced. And I think the way he incorporated all of those quotes into the book, because there were a ton of quotes, you know, he would quote like entire paragraphs at a time from someone. So a lot of the book is that source material, basically, and not too much of it is his own writing necessarily. But I don't think he necessarily needed to have a ton of his own writing in this as well to get across his point. Right. And Speaking of the writing, it comes across in an interview format, which I really like, since I'm the person who does a lot of the interviews for the actual Modern Vinyl site. So it was nice to see this not written out so much as like a feature piece, but just straight up block quotes with various folks, which was really good. Although I do have to say my only gripe with this book is the font color, but you know, (laughs) I don't think I've ever read a book that had a green blue font as opposed to black i honestly don't even know if i noticed that my copy is a used copy and it's all like grimy on the outside so it's definitely like a well-worn book (laughs) so i think i just Mm -hmm. was like oh maybe it just faded or something like that so i don't even think that necessarily caught my attention but that is a good point yeah because you can definitely definitely tell like just straight up when you open it and see the, I believe it's called the colophon, if I'm getting my library terms right here, <laughs> the info about the book pressing and whatnot. But the page next to that, it has, it's just that solid blue green and it's in white lettering, Punk USA, The Rise of Paul Lookout Records, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, yeah, I really can't 
notice it in my copy. It definitely looks like it's black, but I guess if you look closer, maybe it's not. I don't know. I don't know. That That's just something I noticed. Do you have a specific printing of the book? This is totally nerdy and random, but we're going to go here. <laughs> I have the first printing. Okay, cool. I think there's literally only one printing of it because it's 2014. Yeah, probably. See, I thought this book was so much older simply because of how worn my copy is. And I didn't even look at the copyright information until literally just now. So that's definitely an interesting and very nerdy thing to point out that I don't know (laughs) if it would deter people from reading this book because definitely it did not for either of us, even though you noticed it and I did not. But I think, you know, you mentioned the interview type format, and I think that helped present it in a very coherent way, too, because he definitely went, you know, start to end. He didn't jump around and sort of mix up quotes from different eras and that sort of thing for the label. And I think that format really helped sort of give you a, hey, here's where they started, here's where they ended, and here's everything in between that, you know, made them get to that point. And I think for a lot of people, particularly in the Bay Area, many of them probably didn't even know any of this stuff going on behind the scenes. And it seems like a lot of the bands, I wouldn't say were left in the dark, but they just weren't you know, always at the label and that sort of thing. Like most bands are not at their labels constantly to know what the business side is doing and how those things happen behind the scenes, basically. So I think to a lot of people, it came as a surprise when the label, you know, had this hard fall, basically, because they were releasing so many albums. I believe they're on like somewhere in the 300s, at least after giving a look at their catalog website earlier today? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, I definitely saw stuff in like the 300s. I think maybe even 360s was as high as I saw. But that's a lot of releases for an indie label. And I think, you know, as fast as they were cranking out releases when they first started, they probably didn't factor in all of those things that, you know, the major label suits want you to think about when you're making an album. Exactly. And for me, this was a book that taught me much more than I actually knew. So I am much less well-versed in the world of the East Bay punk scene, West Coast punk scene, I guess you could say, than you are as an East Coast kid. So when reading this, I actually enjoyed learning about who was on the label. And I was pleasantly surprised that actually a lot of bands that I do listen to proves how much I go through histories of stuff, but um, showed that a lot of the bands that I've listened to over the years got their start on this label. And another thing, which I will get into more detail a little bit later, because this also goes off of surprising bands I never knew got their start on this label, right. is the amount of women interviewed. This is a book about a punk label. And usually when you think of punk back in its heyday, like when Green Day, Rancid, all those guys, literally guys, got their start, you kind of don't think about the women in the punk scene. And right off the bat, there were several, several little blurbs from women like Camilla Parks from Camilla and the Carnivores and Sue Ryan. And it's just... I enjoyed that because it's something 
you don't really get to hear a lot about these days. I mean, sure, there's a lot of bands with girls just making waves now. But when you think about, you know, the whole punk scene, it is mostly a guy's club. And that's still, you know, kind of true today, where you wouldn't really associate these women being part of these nitty gritty, just grungy punk bands. If that makes exactly. any sense whatsoever. So it's No, like, it does. I I think that was great. And of course, this is me getting into like a little bit of a hidden figures talk, but it's almost like they were hidden figures. Unless you really, really know your stuff, which clearly I don't. And it was <laughs> nice to see that actually written about. And I mean, I did see the author of Hidden Figures speak a few weeks ago. And hearing her talk about why she decided to write it, that was great. And that got me thinking about this book. So I've somehow made my tangent work. <laughs> and and while I am on the topic of minorities... There is a chapter in here, chapter 15, The Queers and Queer Core. That's something you don't also hear a lot about. And I thought that was also really great because not only is it talking about the band, The Queers, where it literally says several bands would be invaluable over the years to look out records as well as vice versa. Walk into any punk event in the 1990s, and you would be sure to see at least one person wearing a shirt with the misleading band name, The Queers. So it's interesting that it's not just talking about queer folks, and they're saying it's kind of a misnomer, but you would kind of take that maybe a little and start thinking about queer people in the punk scene. Yeah, and I think... Because of the fact, too, that this book was written so long after, you know, the label's peak period and everything, you know, like we mentioned, 2014, obviously things have sort of started to change from then going forward on the whole conversation with women in the music scene and that sort of thing. And even more so, you know, last year and the beginning of this year. But I think what is really great about it is the fact that Lookout didn't treat them really any differently than they did any other band on the label. And I know the Donna's is one that you specifically mentioned yes. before. And I just think, you know, the fact that they didn't think anything of it, especially back then, sort of speaks to everyone working at the label. And there were a lot of women working at the label or with the label as well in the business capacity, too. So I think... That is maybe something that sort of helped them have a better perspective on that. And, you know, a lot of these bands didn't necessarily make it big or anything, not in the way that Green Day did. And I know we said Rancid, Operation Ivy, those bands did get mm -hmm. bigger, but they n never really hit that same stride that Green Day did once they, you know, made the jump to the major label and everything. And you know, most bands won't make that goal in life as a band and everything like that. There's plenty of bands that you you and I both love that probably will never be mainstream. And with the way the industry is now, it's like that's sort of almost okay now with everything being digital and everything too. And I know 
obviously vinyl making a comeback if you still want to call it a comeback i just say it's back and deal with it but that's a whole other conversation for a different day i just really like how they didn't put a big emphasis on like oh hey here we're talking about women we're talking about women and that sort of thing it's like they just let it flow with the conversation about the label Mm -hmm. and speaking of the donna's I was surprised to hear that they got their start on this punk label. I am more familiar with the Donna's hits like uh, Take It Off, their appearance in, I think it was, what was the movie? It was a teen movie. I think Melissa Joan Hart was in it. All right, Google to the rescue. Yeah, I have um, no clue what you're talking about. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, they they were in a movie. I think Melissa Joan Hart was in it. And I believe they were called the Electrocutes, which I think was their first name. Um, I think that was their first name before they decided on the Donnas. And let's see. That's what Wikipedia is for. Literally just search the Electrocutes and the Donnas comes up first. Um, Let's see here. History. Well, all the founding band members were born in 1979. Yes. So they were called the Electrocutes towards the end of their high school days. And I believe that is talked about in the book. And they, I swear they were in a movie as the Electrocutes. Ah, there we go. Drive Me Crazy. That's the movie. It's got that guy from Entourage and Sabrina the Teenage Witch in it. And they performed a cover of Keep on Loving You. Okay. Yeah. So that's how I'm familiar with the Donnas. So to see that chapter, Expansion's The Donnas 10-Year Anniversary, I actually was fascinated. Especially since, well, let's see, the Donnas, they don't start talking about the Donnas until, like, the third page when they talk with Maya Ford. Right. And while I'm a huge Green Day fan, I was sort of relieved when... I realized, you know, the book wasn't going to be all about Green Day and Operation Ivy and the bigger name bands on the label because, yes, those bands did play a huge part in the early days of Lookout, but they moved on essentially from the label at one point or another and the label no longer had to really focus on those bands as artists. Basically, they just had their catalog to focus on and as we both know from reading the book, that didn't go so well in the end for Lookout because what ended up happening was a lot of bands pulled their catalog from Lookout. And, you know, I sort of had this realization more so when I was going through and Megan, I know you and I discussed this. I'm making a playlist for this book and not too many of the albums are on Spotify. And if they are, it's like you have to sort of go and compare what they have on Spotify to what Lookout has listed as their catalog on Discogs or something like that, because some of the albums, you know, Asian Man Records now has the rights to a couple of the bands, I believe, and Green Day took back the rights to their albums and EPs, and Operation Ivy pulled their catalog from the label, too. So it's like, I was sort of having to do a ton of research while I was trying to make this playlist, too. And, you know, it's not going to be a super long playlist simply because of this fact. You know, I think I definitely made it at least 10 songs. So there's a good amount of music for you guys to digest there. And we'll link to that in the show notes. But 
I think it's sort of just really sad to see how hard this label fell in the end. Right. And I just pulled up a full roster of bands that have released at least one EP or full length with Lookout. Uh And it's quite a lengthy list. And in the book, one of the folks that they talked to a lot um, were folks with Screeching Weasel. Right. And I thought that was interesting because Screeching Weasel is still considered a very large punk name by today's standards. They're not mainstream big, but they're widely known, you know, within yeah, the Yeah, and they scene. continue Generations to release a lot them. of albums. Right. But looking at this roster, it's actually kind of funny because a band called, wait, is this the fuel I'm thinking of? This is not the fuel I'm thinking of, I don't think. No, there's a band called Fuel, but it's the hardcore band, not the alternative rock band from <laughs> Pennsylvania. That's what I was thinking it was. Um, fuel from good old Harrisburg. <laughs> that would have been funny. <laughs> that would have been really funny. But I mean, the Donnas are on this list, the Dolly Rots, um, the Eyeliners, Green Day, obviously, Camel and the Carnivores, The Lookouts, The Mr. T Experience, which is also talked about in the book, Operation Ivy, Parasites, Pansy Division, The Potato Men. What a name. Uh, (laughs) Pretty Girls Make Graves. Wow, that's a throwback band right there. Rancid. (laughs) Um. Yeah. Oh, and and Ted Lee won the pharmacists, which actually surprised me. I I don't think I saw anything from Ted Leo in this book. I think that would have actually been really nice. Yeah, I know I did throw at least one of those songs in the playlist simply because it was one of the few I could find, and I think it would have been interesting to see him talk to every single band that put out a release but obviously that's something that's sort of realistic if anyone ever wanted to talk to an entire roster from one specific label that would take a lot more work (laughs) generations but it is interesting that i would think you know i don't know exactly what ted leo released on here ted and the pharmacist but it would have been nice to see because he is one of the bigger names that's more recognizable, say, within the indie sphere as opposed to the punk sphere. Right. And I definitely did pick a song that was specifically on a Lookout release, but it is escaping me at the moment. And I think, you know, like I said, just the fact that they can't even get so much of their catalog onto streaming services and stuff, I feel like that's even a bigger downside than sort of how the label ended because yes obviously the green day releases are going to be on there they're not going to not have kerplunk available for streaming which i believe was their first lp on lookout if i'm remembering this correctly and then they had some eps and those were then put together to make you know like 39 smooth a thousand hours and those eps so i think you know, just the fact that it's so hard to listen to a lot of this music now, too, is a downside that they didn't even talk about in the book. Because I'm going through the Furious George versus Lookout chapter. 
and Ron Greer from the Winona Riders, what a name for a band, <laughs> said, I wrote internet distribution into that contract back in 95, and now we're on iTunes and we're on eMusic, which wasn't done according to the contract and could probably be grounds to look at the contract again. The contract was quite lengthy. It started at a few pages they made up. Then I added some provisions, and then they had a lawyer look at it, and that expanded it a little more. Blah, blah, blah. The original lookout contract for all bands was about a page. So when you put that into perspective, thinking about music contracts for bands today, you do have to include all of these categories, like digital streaming if you want your music license for, say, commercials or something, blah, blah, blah. And to hear that it was a page... There's no way you could have written all of this into one page unless you were using like size 2.5 font or something. (laughs) Even then, I don't know, because you know how small my label is. And I believe my contract is about seven or eight pages. And that's simply because I had a friend put it together who, you know, was interested in the law side of everything. And so it's a very formal contract, so I know sometimes that will intimidate bands, but it's also a very simple contract. You know, eight pages is nothing for a music contract these days. And I know if you sign with a major label, they're probably at least twice as long, if not longer. And, you know, I felt like, okay, I'm going to put these things in my contract for bands, and I can't even imagine it being a single page i think i did a deal memo with a band once and it wasn't even a single page (laughs) and that's something that is much shorter than a contract Mm -hmm. and i mean now going further into this chapter it also kind of starts to describe the demise of lookout records when it comes to legal litigation yeah because sometime in i guess it's the 90s Houghton Mifflin, a publisher of many great books for schools and whatnot, and Curious George, actually fought a battle. George Tab of Furious George fought a battle with Houghton Mifflin um, because his band lampooned Curious George. And ultimately, the band lost after seven years of legal issues. And it says that these incidents continue to demonstrate the communication and internal management problems and disorganization within Lookout that were starting to erode various relationships and show the results of Applegren's lack of decision-making experience. So it's also kind of a primer on what not to do as a label. Yeah, and you know, it seems like they had things sort of all figured out in the beginning. They were just sort of winging everything and getting a ton of releases out for these bands but you know I can't even fathom getting out releases as quickly as they do and I'm only currently now doing digital releases and those are easy to do in comparison to printing CDs printing vinyl and that sort of thing and you know the fact that they had so many problems I think just shows you how hard it actually is to put out music on a consistent basis and run a label. And while there are plenty of labels who do it well, just think about how many labels we've seen go under or have to close their doors since even just Lookout started, especially in the indie scene, obviously with 
major labels, that's a whole different beast. But there are plenty of labels that sort of come and go with the waves of music and everything. And Lookout was definitely, you know, the East Bay punk scene label. And then as that sort of dwindled, and I wouldn't say there isn't a punk scene there. There definitely still is an East Bay punk scene, I'm sure. Just like there's still an LA punk scene, even though it's not quite the same as it was back then. And, you know, these labels want to do so much to help the bands, but sometimes they just get in over their heads, which clearly was the point with or was the problem with Lookout. And it's just sad to see how things play out, like I mentioned, with a bunch of bands pulling their catalog and all of the legal troubles and everything like that. And, you know, you go search for Lookout now and it's like they still haven't really caught up with the times. Like, I know you were probably looking at Wikipedia for that list of their roster, mm-hmm. right? I was, because there isn't one on the book that actually gives the full listing. They have a website, but it's sort of way out of date, and you can't even... Like, you can, I think, click through to buy the music, but there's no links to stream it, like I said, and it it's just something that... S- seems to make things more difficult than they need to be for a label. Mm -hmm. And there actually was a chapter in here about the Starship crashes into the digital age, about what to do with streaming services. So back in the day, with early services such as CDUctive, I think I'm saying that right, CDUctive, anyway, uh, that (laughs) one, and eMusic. Chris Applegren was saying that they started hearing from people at companies like the aforementioned two, And the idea was that these new businesses would be online record stores building groups of exclusive labels. So if you wanted a Lookout release, you'd go to XYZ site to find our digital music. And this was pre-iTunes and obviously pre-Apple Music, pre-Pandora, Spotify, Tidal, Napster, LimeWire, etc., etc., even though, you know, Napster and LimeWire are more not legal ways of streaming music. Um... But it's just interesting. And they actually were kind of shot down. Like they were interested in doing a deal with digital services to market their stuff online. Kind of, I I guess what this chapter is trying to describe is maybe more like the early workings of Bandcamp, which we all know and love today and appreciate. But um, let's see. Applegren spoke to Ruth Schwartz over at Mortem about the digital stuff and she said no way and they were basically told that mortem was already their digital distributor and she said that we are your exclusive worldwide distributor and banned labels from doing licensing deals or exclusive distribution deals in foreign territories so it sounds like they were also preventing the stuff from being digitized for worldwide consumption and it sounded like it was just keeping it in the u.s Right. And it would definitely be interesting to even see Lookout set up something like a band camp and put all of the releases up there, whether, you know, they choose to do it for a set amount or the pay what you want model just to see if it works for them. That would definitely be interesting. But, you know, I think that sort of gets off topic from the book and more into 2017 than where the label was in 2014 when the book was published and everything. But Mm -hmm. since you and I both like this book, I believe I gave it a four out of five on Goodreads because I did really enjoy the way it was presented and everything. 
what would you rate this? I would say probably like a 3.75, which is still pretty high ranking, very technical sounding, but I felt like there also could have been more. Right. It's a small microcosm of who was on the label and a small microcosm of the actual punk scene as a whole. And there are many more voices that could have been heard. I did start to recognize a lot of the names as the book went on in the chapters. And it made me think that, oh, these were some of the heavy hitters in the label. Like, it would have been really cool to maybe see something, even if it was a small thing, from the guys of Green Day or even Operation Ivy. Or as I said earlier, Ted Leo. Right. But we didn't quite get that. And if you're going to be writing a book about a label that is widely known with acts such as those... Maybe it wouldn't hurt, or maybe it wouldn't hurt to say we tried to reach out to the camps of the bands and either didn't get a reply or were told no or just something ridiculous. Right. And I don't know if maybe they didn't do that because they didn't want to shine a bad light on any of those bands who did not want to talk about the label because... While some people had, you know, a positive experience with Lookout, there were, as we saw in the book, some that didn't have quite the same feelings towards the label. And I think, you know, obviously Green Day being a huge band, Lookout was so long ago for them that I don't know if it's necessarily something they want to revisit all the time, because I'm sure, you know, plenty of people have asked them about Lookout over the years. And so it's just one of those things that's, like you said, hard to know if they even tried to contact those people because it wasn't mentioned in the book. But, you know, I think, well, one, I should note that Goodreads does not let you do like half stars or quarter stars in anything for the review. So it's either, you know, one, two, three, four or five, which that's a whole thing, that separate thing that bothers me. And I've noted that on Twitter previously. But I think, you know, I gave it the four because I was leaning more in the 3.5 range. But in those cases, I sort of just bump it up to the four because I feel like a three would be doing it a disservice or something like that. I don't know. I'm very weird when it comes to ranking things on Goodreads because of the fact that you can't do half stars or anything like that. But I did really enjoy this. And are there any other points you want to make on this book? No. Okay. Got through everything. Awesome. Well, we will go ahead and move on to what music we've been listening to, which for me, it's a short list because I've been preoccupied doing other things recently and I really haven't listened to all that much music. But I did recently realize that Joshua Radden had a new release come out called The Fall this year. I have no clue when it came out this year, but it is out. And I remember in Philadelphia, I went and saw him. I believe it was at the Electric Factory, and I had the chance to interview him before the show. And he is probably, I would say, similar to Matt Nathanson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he sort of has that softer kind of voice and, you know, can write great songs and that sort of thing. Musically, it's slightly different, and he plays acoustic guitar and everything. So it leans more in that direction, but it was a great album to listen to. I definitely need to revisit it again because I only listened to it once, but he was someone I really got into in college and I had no clue he was working on an album, nothing. I 
clearly have not been paying attention as well as I should be. And I was pleasantly surprised to just find this. I believe I found it in the new releases section on Apple Music one day. Wait, so it's Radden, not Raiden? Have I been saying his name wrong for I have years? no idea. I honestly don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> I thought it was Raiden. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's something I'll have to check out because I do like his music. And I associate him more with singer-songwriters along the line of William Fitzsimmons as opposed to Matt Nathanson. Okay. I have not listened to him, so that's probably why I went the other way yeah, with it. <laughs> it's he's still not as widely known as say Matt Nathanson and right. Matt Nathanson's early stuff might be more representative of what he sounds like anyway. Um, just go on to my recommendation or my, uh, what I've been listening to lately. <laughs> One of which I'm saving for my recommendation this week. So I'll get into that in just a few minutes, but I have three songs here. Lord is coming out with a new album this year and everyone cheered. That's not actually the title of her album, but that's just basically, you know, the response everyone had. So, so far, she has performed on SNL, has two songs out, and they are called Liability and Greenlight. And Greenlight was the first single released from her forthcoming album, whereas Liability is obviously the second. And I know that Greenlight had a lot of you know, mixed reviews. And I think we talked about this on our last podcast. Yeah. So there's that. But Liability, if you didn't like Greenlight, you'll probably like Liability a lot more. Like the storytelling behind Liability as well. But also a few weeks ago or within the time period of like, you know, recording the last episode we had in this one, First Aid Kit released a new song called You Are the Problem Here. And it tackles sexual assault, sexual harassment, and it's a pretty powerful anthem. And I'm sure my dad will listen to it and kill it for me like he has with some of their other (laughs) songs, but that's okay. It's not like my dad listens to this podcast anyway. I'm not sorry. Uh, But I like the release that First Aid Kit has. It's nice to hear new stuff from them, and it's tackling... A problem that's pretty pretty widespread in the scene right now across the board. It's about time someone actually made a song about it. Nice, yeah. I don't know if I've really listened to them, so I'll have to check that out. They are Swedish folk rock. Okay. And they also have a really fantastic cover of Fleet Fox's Tiger Mountain Peasant song. Nice. On that note, we are going to give you our next book pick, which is Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist by Rachel Cohn and David Leviathan. And I know the latter simply because he did Will Grayson, Will Grayson with John Green. And that's probably the only thing of his I've read. And I am familiar with this book, the movie and everything. Have not read it, have not seen the movie. And Megan's probably slightly disappointed in me for that. I mean, I've seen the movie and I've read the book and I have the soundtrack and it's great. It's going to be a nice change of pace because it is a young adult novel and it's just kind of like light, fluffy reading. Sometimes we need that. We've had nothing but serious releases on the Misaligned Read series. And so this will be the first fictional output we talk about. But it will be good for discussion because... 
it has it's pretty heavy on the playlist theme and in the movie nick played by michael sarah in a very michael sarah role is a master of making playlists and nora who is portrayed by oh my god i am literally drawing a blank here i know who she is i can see her in my head i just can't like get her name out this is a problem (laughs) the one from two broke girls right yeah um i can picture her come on give me give me a name google cat dennings there we go about to say something completely wrong i was drawing uh, a blank but, too don't worry <laughs> yeah kat dennings is nora and she says something along the lines of you're my musical soulmate so this book has a solid place in my heart i think some of the other modern vinyl staffers have actually read it and or seen the movie so maybe we can get some input on them from this nice definitely and do you have any recommendations this week megan i do this week I have been jamming since it came out on Friday, You're Not As Blank As You Think by Sorority Noise. It is their third LP. Actually, no, I take that back. It is their second LP. I'm thinking of Forgettable, as which is technically like the EP length. Anyway, it is their third widely hyped release, I guess you could say, and their first on Triple Crown Records. It's really, really good. I think it's got album of the year potential to be in my top 10 this year. And it's it's pretty deep. It tackles a lot of themes of grief, depression, and hint of religion, which is very interesting. And it's it's really hard to describe. Like if you liked Joy Departed, I think you'll like this one a lot more and possibly find more to relate to with it. Based on the interviews I've read that Cam has done, it's pretty personal. It's pretty deep personal. And there is a song on there, Second Letter from St. Julian. I think that's in reference to Julian Baker. Okay. Yeah, I have yet to listen to this because, like I said, I was sidetracked and busy with other things this weekend. So the music listening has been on pause for at least the last few days. (laughs) I listened to it so much over the weekend to the point where I actually took my boyfriend's phone, started playing it on Apple Music, and I think he enjoyed it. He'd never listened to them until, you know, this weekend. <laughs> nice. Gotta gotta make a new fan out of him. Yep. Yeah. And this week I have a little bit of self-promotion to do here for my recommendations. I released classic by elephant jake on my label on friday which obviously releasing something the same day as sorority noise not the best idea i've ever had but you know it's uh an awesome release i co-released it with ian farmer's brother ethan and his label no moms no rules records they are doing the cd release for it and i handled all of the digital aspects of the release so that is out now and i will link to it on Bandcamp and you know maybe I'll link to the streaming services as well so you guys can check it out wherever you enjoy listening to music the most and then I should have my Iron Fist review up by the time you guys are listening to this over on Chorus FM I binged watched the whole thing on Friday and Saturday so that is another reason why music listening had not happened because I had 13 hours of a TV show to watch so I could review it and you know, there have definitely been a lot of 
mixed reviews between the critics and the fans of Iron Fist because I feel like, you know, he's just one of those characters where if you don't know too much about him, you might not feel inclined to watch this show at all. So, you know, I try to get my thoughts out. I probably did about 900 words on it, which some people think that was too much and the show did not deserve that many. But that is what I did. And if you guys are interested in that show at all, I tried to keep it fairly spoiler free. So, you know, it's maybe just some minor plot points that I have in there as far as spoilers go. But Megan, is there anything else you have for this episode? Nope, not at all. Awesome. Well, that wraps it up. And as always, thank you guys for listening. If you have a moment and you want to rate the show or review the show over on iTunes, hit the recommend button in Overcast or your podcast player of choice if they can recommend podcasts there. Anything you can do to show us how much you enjoyed listening to the podcast, because I'm assuming if you are listening, you do still enjoy the show. 70 episodes later, we have hit episode 70. We're on that roll to 100, Megan. Woo! But as always, thank you guys for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.